I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Okay, welcome. Um, thank you all for coming and for braving the extremely welcome apocalyptic weather. Um, this is the latest event in our sporadic year-long series of uh, centenary events marking some of 2022's many significant centenaries. In this case, Wittgenstein's Tractatus. Uh, the writing in the LRB archive that has inspired these events is collected in this small pink book that is for sale along with uh, some of the panellists' work. I'm Sam Kinchin-Smith, the LRB's Head of Special Projects, and I'm delighted to be joined this evening by Sina Gessing, a Danish poet whose Tracticus Philosophico-Poeticus, a poetic reimagining of Wittgenstein, is her first work to appear in English, by Ray Monk, Emeritus Professor of Philosophy at the University of Southampton and the author of acclaimed biographies of Wittgenstein and Bertrand Russell, and Max Richter, one of our most celebrated and in-demand contemporary composers whose pioneering literary collaborations have seen him work with texts by Murakami, Kafka, Wolf, and most recently, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Um, this is a conversation about a book that is a theory of everything, which sought to all solve all the problems of philosophy in under 100 pages, and so an hour could easily pass simply by attempting to introduce and elucidate its central argument. Uh, that language can only work by picturing the world, that it does this by configuring in prepositions the names of simple objects into the arrangements that correspond when the arrangement is true to the actual configuration of objects in the world, and when the arrangement is false to possible arrangement of objects, that the world is therefore an array of simple objects, and that if language propositions don't seem to be in this form, they can be analysed into them. Ray, how did I do? <laughs> very good. <laughs> but instead of doing that, our plan is to have a very much more subjective conversation about the influence of the Tractatus through a lens of Cena, Max and Ray's own work and practice. The light the Tractatus shines on that, and hopefully to arrive at a more truthful account of Wittgensteinian aspiration of this unique work's unique significance in literary and intellectual history. Also, we're going to structure the conversation around readings of individual propositions that uh, our panellists have selected uh, as a way into their thinking about Wittgenstein and their own work. Um, and so to kick us off, I thought perhaps, Ray, you could read your chosen preposition. Sure. It's Proposition 6.52. 
we feel that even when all possible scientific questions have been answered, the problems of life remain completely untouched. Why have I chosen that? Um, because obviously as a biographer, my uh, first interest is, is in life, lives. And it seems to me that in the Tractatus, in the process of articulating what Wittgenstein considered to be the limits of thought, which he characterizes as the limits of language, he also drew up limits of science. Now, a few years after the Tractatus had been published, uh, the Viennese philosophers, uh, the logical positivists, uh, attempted to do the same thing, but from a very different point of view. So the logical positivists distinguished science from rubbish. Everything that wasn't science was just to be thrown away into the wastebasket. For Wittgenstein, however, the most important things are those which are not susceptible to scientific treatment. So the famous last proposition of the Tractatus says, whereof one cannot speak, thereof one must be silent. One of the logical positivists, Otto Neurath, uh, subtly changed that and said, we must have indeed be silent, but not about anything. So for Wittgenstein, there was indeed something to be silent about. And that is where everything important lies. Wittgenstein wrote to a prospective publisher of the book saying, saying this. He said, well, the book really consists of two parts. The part that I've written and the part that I haven't. And he said, and the part that I haven't is far more important. Which was not a very winning strategy <laughs> for getting his book published. And the publisher turned it down. But you can see in that the spirit in which Wittgenstein wrote the Tractatus, the spirit in which he philosophized, which was very different from what you might call the scientific uh, uh, attitude of the Vienna Circle of Logical Positivists. So what lies in that area that science, science cannot reach? Well, logic. His book was first and foremost an attempt to articulate what logic is. Logic, he says, is transcendental. We cannot speak about it. So logic lies in that area, so does philosophy, so does ethics, aesthetics, the meaning of life, religion. All the things that we really deeply care about. Now it's not that those things are to be, uh, uh, we, 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 we're to not address those things at all, rather our language is not able to say true and false propositions about those things. But he says, what cannot be said can be shown. And so in those areas, we can't say true things, but we can show important truths. And that, for me, um, is where his work in the Tractatus uh, crosses my work as a biographer. It seems to me that what you're trying to do in biography is not present a theory of somebody, of course not, nor is it to apply a theory. I have seen biographies that attempt to apply psychological theories to their biographies, and it seems to me it's never a success. Biography is not itself a theory, it's not a, an application of a theory, it's an attempt to show, an attempt to understand somebody by showing what was important to them. You listed there aesthetics, ethics, morality. Do you think artistic projects also occupy that space, and do you think that Wittgenstein 
thought artistic projects also occupied that space. There seems yeah. to be a, a, a difference in opinion between some people who think to some extent that the project of the Tractatus leaves no room for those because its stakes are so high that... Uh, but then there's also other people who, who have argued that actually what Wittgenstein was doing was clearing the space for those things to yeah. carry the meaning that he believed in. No, art, artistic projects are very much... They're, they're not only, you know, he not only leaves room for them, he insists upon them. They are the means by which we show each other the things that really matter. Now, he was invited by the Vienna Circle of Logical Positivists to join in their discussions. And in order to demonstrate how differently his attitude differed from theirs, he turned up to the first meeting with a volume of poetry by Rabindranath Tagore, the Indian poet. And he just read Tagore's poetry to, to uh, the Logical Positivists, as if to say, look, my attitude could not possibly be uh, more different uh, than, than yours to the limits of, of science and what lies beyond those limits. So yes, and, and the, the, the art form with which he was most with, with which he was closely associated with well, was music. His family were extraordinarily uh, musical. Um, his brother was a, a concert pianist. Uh, his, his mother was a very able pianist, as was uh, his sister. Brahms was a very was a, a a regular visitor to the home. The home was steeped in music, and when you when you look at Wittgenstein's manuscripts, he'll be writing something on the philosophy of mathematics or the philosophy of language, and then he'll have four bars of Brahms or you know uh, four bars of Beethoven. He, he just knew this; it was just in his mind. Yeah. And music, he he once said to his friend Maurice Drury, "How can I expect to be understood when I can't say a single word about?" how much music has meant to me. So music means an awful lot, even though, as it were, it fails the Tractatus test. The Tractatus test is that if a proposition does not picture a possible state of affairs, then it, then it is meaningless. On that criterion, music ought to be meaningless. But of course, to Wittgenstein, it wasn't meaningless. Yeah. It, 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 he, he, he took a, a view of music more like Schopenhauer's, that, Music opens up to us the depth that lies beyond that which we can say. Fortunately, we have with us both a literary and a musical artist, so we can explore uh, the stakes of this in conversation with them. But um, I'm interested that you say that about music because uh, it seems to me that in some ways music is more resistant to the argument of the tractators than literary art because of the fact that Wittgenstein's own material is language and yeah. it is through language that essentially the, the paradox of his project resides and where arguably his project fails um, and so I'm wondering whether in some ways it's easier uh, to make the case through something like music that at least doesn't have to deal with this material that he provides no example of doing what he says it needs to do in some ways it's sort of immune um. Yes, I mean, music is a difficult uh, thing, and he, he mentions it one or two uh, times in the Tractatus. So I'll read out one of them. Uh, this is Proposition 4.011. He says, at first sight, a proposition, I'll turn that off in a minute, a proposition, one set out on the printed page, for example, does not seem to be a picture of the reality with which it is concerned. This is his so-called picture theory of the proposition. A proposition pictures the state of affairs in the world uh, that, it de that it deems to be true or false. 
But neither, he says, do written notes appear at first sight to be a picture of a piece of music, nor our phonetic notation, the alphabet, to be a picture of our speech. And yet, these sign languages prove to be pictures, even in the ordinary sense of what they represent. And then a bit further, he says, a gramophone record, the musical idea, the written notes, and the sound waves all stand to one another in the same internal relation of depicting that holds between language and the world. So, with language in the world, we have the objects that make up the world here arranged in certain ways. Language has a name for each of these objects, and the arrangement of names is isomorphic with the arrangement of the objects, and that's how a proposition can say something about the world. And now he says something really curious about music, that music pictures in just the same way. Well, it can't, can it? Well, let's, <laughs> let's pick that up. Can it? Max? Well, I mean, I think uh, one of the things which is, uh, is so fascinating about music is exactly this question. And actually, it's one of the things that made me want to become involved with music uh, right at the beginning. When I was a tiny child, um, so less, less than three years old, so I was still living in Germany, uh, I had my first, my first sort of conscious memory of listening to music. And it was um, what I later found out was a Bach, Bach double Wallenkenschotte. And the sensation of this, this sound hitting me was very multidimensional. Um, I experienced melody, I experienced, you know, nice colors, texture, movement, energy, all of that mm. stuff. But I also experienced something else. And it seemed to me that was the most important thing about it. And this was to do with there being a grammar mm -hmm. sitting behind mm -hmm. this sound, which made the individual sounds mean something, mm -hmm. right? Which is such a puzzle. Mm. Um, and it remains a puzzle, actually, to this day. <laughs> um, and I think all of us who, who work with music are, are partly drawn to it because of that sort of riddle. Uh, how does music, how do these sounds, vibrations in space, mm -hmm. how do they do this thing to us? It's very strange. I'm interested um, in that being an experience you had when you were a child. And then obviously you um, became educated in musicological mm. theory. Mm. And it seems to me that musicological theory has certain things in common with Wittgenstein's project mm. in terms of it being a kind of code through which things can be understood but for the vast majority of people engaging with your work it's not the code through which they understand it it's a kind of it's a code that you to some extent are a master of but you have to have meaning carry through it in a way that has to transcend the ability of people to necessarily understand that what you're doing there is, is that and I'm wondering whether you feel like the way that you understand music now is the same as, essentially the same as how you understood music then? Well, yes. You know, you learn harmony and counterpoint, you learn how it's made, and that's obviously important. And to some extent, then you can calibrate how, you know, events structured through time will have a particular impact mm -hmm. on the mm -hmm. listener. And it's, I mean, music is a storytelling medium really so you're 
conveying events in a way which to you seem to add up to something. Mm -hmm. Um, but this is all very, very conjectural. It's all very, I mean, every, even talking about that is, is very hazy, you know. Um, and actually trying to, uh, trying to sort of understand exactly how that happens is, um, is very difficult. I mean, music analysis is fraught with this question, you know. Um, pretty much all music analysis rests on subjective ideas of what is a significant event. And you know, how do you even begin to, to uh, make that in an objective way? It's very, very difficult. Well, I suppose that's part of what's so extraordinary about Wittgenstein's project mm. is that he, he took on a similar level of difficulty and, and did it, yeah. uh, or tried to do it, but did it without examples, famously. Right. I wonder whether the way that you think about these things, whether you can say something about, I think this is a com something you've talked about before, the relationship between complexity and simplicity mm. in your work the yeah. fact that finding a place of simplicity is often an incredibly complex yeah. process which seems to me to be uh something that wittgenstein could also be said to be aspiring to is that does that help us get to a kind of point of comparison between this code and your code and the work yeah. that results well i I mean, Wittgenstein follows, I think, Tolstoy, doesn't he, in his idea of what great artworks are. Mm. That, in other words, that they are, to some extent, they have to be comprehensible in order mm. to be, you know, I think that's true, isn't it? Um, yes. Uh, so, you know, for me, intelligibility mm. and, and a kind of directness are incredibly important. Uh, the musical context, I think, is sort of historical aspects quite important you know we've got the sort of modernist era where you know a piece of music was more like a technical manifesto or a sort of linguistics project you know so uh, there are historical reasons for that but mm. you know the outcome was uh, music art music was very much for specialists you know you often felt you're writing for other composers and you sort of, you know, it's the same sort of 11 people at every concert. And, you know, it's incredibly, you know. Um, so that struck me as not really, uh, not really something I wanted to be involved with. Right. I just wanted to add that um, a relevant fact here is that Wittgenstein couldn't abide any music later than Brahms. Right. No. Um, well, very um, few people at avant-garde outside he said their he own field. He couldn't right? listen to anything after Brahms. And yeah. He said, and even in Brahms, I can hear the gears turning. Right. Um, he, he subscribed to a very Spenglerian view that we live in a society that is much to its detriment dominated by our mathematicians and our scientists, mm -hmm. whereas a, a, um, a fully functioning culture is dominated by its artists and its and, and its musicians. Mm. Um, there's a I'll quickly uh, read this story from Maurice Drury. Maurice Drury says uh, was, he recorded his conversations with Wittgenstein, and he says that Wittgenstein came to his uh, rooms looking very distressed, so much so that I asked him what was the matter. Wittgenstein said, "I was walking about in Cambridge and passed a bookshop, and in the window were portraits of Russell, Freud, and Einstein. A little further on, in a music shop." I saw portraits of Beethoven, Schubert, and Chopin. Comparing these portraits, I felt intensely the terrible degeneration that has come over the human spirit in the course of only a hundred years. <laughs> yeah. um, Max, do you want to read your choice of proposition? Oh, yes, I will. 
So this is um, very short, 6, 13. Uh, logic is not a body of doctrine, but a mirror image of the world. Logic is transcendental. Do you want to just talk about how that might lead into music? Well, um, I'm not sure it does really. Uh, the reason I chose that is because, you know, having read uh, Sin's poem, um, I felt like it actually made the Tractatus feel more like a poem mm. afterwards, it is. right? Yes, it is. Um, it, I felt like I could sort of see other things in it, and that was a particularly sort of mm. poetry like. Mm line. Um, I mean, Wittgenstein said, didn't he, that one, ideally one should write philosophy as one writes a poem, right? Dichten, he uses that word. Um, so I wondered if that's what you started with, that sort of idea. Yes. Well, it's not my, my, my time to speak, but no, I, I just I can, I can add that the extreme audacity of mm. his poetic yeah. lines yeah. Is, is, is very is the core of, of dealing with, with poetry because it's dealing with creation mm. and, in, and, and he has both audacity and humility mm. and I think that's why he's so occupied with mm. the, totali mm. the totological mm. thinking mm. Uh, and, and, and that was, was a, a way of going extremely far without having went anywhere and, and that was mm. my great inspiration in, in that sense, I definitely thought of all of his being uh, writings in the Tractatus as, 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 as radical poetry. Yeah. Yeah. And, and when you read the Tractatus for the first time, did you immediately see that quality to it? Or were you initially <laughs> potentially, you know, intimidated by the implications of it for trying to articulate something in language? I definitely saw the the well as I stated the the radical approach to language mm -hmm. as the most inspirational fact that anything could give me as a poet. Mm. I, I I I couldn't search in any poem for exactly that feature. Mm. I, I couldn't find it. So I I also had a desperate need of having something very much far beyond beyond me to reach for. Mm -hmm. And I, I Wittgenstein was is the only one who could give me that. Right. Um, also, his way of thinking of poetry as act, no, sorry, language and philosophy as, as act, as an yeah. act, yeah. Is, is, is a way of never, is, it's, I, well, it's quite similar, not, not similar, but I, I, I really feel that poetry is, um, is action, mm. um, right. and, and it's like playing uh, with, with the world. And yeah. with reality, yeah. uh, dealing with it in, in, in actions, and it can be it can also be actions like uh, touching the ideal or, or, and, and removing it from its place and, and find it in another place and then put it back again. And and, and this this way of acting with mm. thought is is also extremely important. I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think one of the most interesting things about your book is that it clearly has this sort of ferocious engagement with what you just described but it it also seems to me to be to not take itself too seriously it's quite funny in places and it's sort of uh, almost sort of insouciant in expressing gigantic things um is that a texture that you detected in Wittgenstein or is that a reflection of your own way of reading well I think it's humor is very close to to um 
courage because you don't you don't mind you just do it yeah. and, and, and I think it's humor is, is like that it, it doesn't care it doesn't it doesn't really try to say something that needs to be understood it mm. just do it, does it uh, but um, I, 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 I've, I've been a part on a path in my previous books uh, where I, um, I, 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 in my very early poetry, I had some um, everyday objects and then some eternal objects, mm -hmm. and then I threw it, I threw it together. Mm -hmm. But then I, I, I had a feeling that the everydayness had to be represented by the the way of speaking instead of by images. Mm -hmm. So I, I feel that humor is a way of dealing mm -hmm. everyday life right. with the eternal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And that is, I mean, it, the the way that you break up the kind of large universal abstract images is with these kind of uh, speech idiomatic yeah. kind yeah. of little uh, almost self-undermining turns of phrase is it a is it a book that you think is is mostly to be read aloud rather than read on the page for that reason yes uh, it, it does come to life in a way but I, I also knew now you talked about the graphicness of, of, of language and, and Wittgenstein's thoughts of that and and I, I, I do think that the, the the written word um, has opportunities of becoming well ideal in a way. I, I have to say that, uh, and and I am a little in, I'm intrigued by by the uh, this realm that is sort of flow flow. And you talked about this in, in music as mm. well that which we cannot reach, uh -huh. and that that, right. that which is not inside the, the structure. And then the loud sound of reading is structure. Right. So. It's it's a paradox. I think it's it's exactly as it, it it comes to life when you read, but it has to be read, and not alive. Right. With this in mind, how seriously did Wittgenstein take himself? Well, with regard to what you said about humour, Wittgenstein once said um, that a work of philosophy could be written that consisted entirely of jokes. Right. Mm. Yeah. Um, and. There aren't many gags in the tractations. Um, but his later work is full of jokes mm. and funny stories mm. and, you know, mm. funny metaphors and, and, and so on. So he, 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 he you know, his, um, he honed his routine as a comedian. But isn't the tractatus a brilliant gag? In well, so far as it presents an understanding of language that it willfully doesn't manifest itself, but right. in not manifesting it itself, it also creates some of the immortal lines of 20th century literature. Sure. It's a kind of very bizarre fulfillment of the opposite project to itself, which right. seems to me to be almost the definition of a joke. Okay. So there are two fundamentally different ways of understanding the tractatus that exist among uh, philosophers. The traditional way of understanding it is that it puts forward a theory of meaning according to which its own propositions are meaningless. And about 30 years ago, a lot of philosophers said, look, attributing such a contradiction to a great philosopher is embarrassing. Can't we understand the book in a different kind of way? And so they started, this is uh, Jim Conant and, and Corey Diamond, and they they develop something similar to what you've just said. They, they develop this view that it doesn't put forward a theory of language according to which its own propositions are meaningless. Rather, it le it's a work of irony. It's a work of sustained irony that leads the reader into thinking that the book is going to deliver a theory of meaning. And right up until the very end, the reader thinks, oh, I've got this theory of meaning now. And then it all collapses. Mm. 
And Conant and, and, and Diamond's view is, and that was the whole point all along. They were going to show you that this was a mirage, that the idea that um, uh, philosophy can offer a theory of meaning is a mistake. Mm -hmm. And that was his chosen way of, of, of mm. making the mistake in a, in a kind of uh, performative way. I mean, you know, emphasizing the idea that, that he says in the Tractatus, philosophy is an activity, uh, not, a, not a discipline. And, and this is, this is a, 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 an active way of, of, of making that point. And it's rather an attractive interpretation. However, it's contradicted by almost everything he said. <laughs> I mean, internally, it makes complete sense, yeah. and as I say, is rather attractive. But when you look at the letters he wrote to Bertrand Russell, to Gottlob Frege, to, to Engelmann, you can see that he does indeed think he's put forward a theory of meaning. Mm. But, I mean, well, that leads into an unfair question to ask a biographer, but then we're into the territory of structuralism, right? Where the, the fact of the text matters more than what he said about it in letters to his colleagues. But what do you think Wittgenstein himself would have made of a structuralist reading of his own work? That's a cunning question, <laughs> because it purports to adopt structuralism, only to abandon it, because you're asking me that question yeah. as a biographer. Yeah, so yes, I, I think Wittgenstein would have rejected that interpretation, and he would have said, no, that's not what I meant, and he certainly wouldn't have been happy with the view, well, that doesn't matter, who cares what you meant? You know, mm. he, He's not mm. going to adopt that. Mm. No, I think it's perfectly clear the, that he thought he'd put forward a theory of meaning. And, and then he's, he's very upfront towards the end of the book. He says, My propositions serve as elucidations in the following way. Anyone who understands me eventually recognizes them as nonsensical when he has used them as steps to climb up beyond them. He must, so to speak, throw away the ladder mm. after he has climbed up on it. Mm. So that is how I, I think he regarded his propositions. They were meaningless. Nevertheless, and, 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 and this is a problem, of course, but nevertheless, they could be used as a kind of gesture to get people to the point at which they can throw the ladder away and then they can see that these propositions are meaningless and that there cannot be a theory of logic because logic is transcendental. Max, I'm interested in the way that you approach text in your work mm. um, and the fact that you, you clearly see it at the centre of your... I mean, quite a lot of your projects, yeah. that music has the ability to contribute something to text that helps us understand it, whether yes. it's a kind of ironic counterpoint or yeah. whether it's a multiplicity of perspective or whether it's a cumulative effect or whatever else. Is that almost the silence of which Wittgenstein's work ends, that you fill that silence with something that re-injects meaning into the work? Well, yeah, um, I think... The interesting part in that question is what we mean by something. The something, you know, mm. it goes back to the problem of what music really is mm. and what it does. You know, I'm a, a passionate reader. I love literature. I love stories. And, you know, I'm very interested in ideas. And using a texts as either as kind of sound objects for their, just for their sonic qualities or for their yeah, literary qualities or narrative qualities. I mean, for me, this is uh, something very natural. Mm. And I've really, I mean, it's been in music forever, actually, this, this sort of idea. But yes, I think that, you know, the counterpoint between the, the kind of concrete storytelling aspect of, you know, the human voice of, the, of a text and the more diffuse, hard to pin down qualities that instrumental music 
mm-hmm. has. Um, I think these two things can work together in very interesting ways. I think it's time for Sina's proposition, and then perhaps you could follow your proposition with a reading from your own book. Yes, definitely. Three, 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 two. No preposition can make a statement about itself because a propositional sign cannot be contained in itself. That is the whole of the theory of types. Three, the world is imported. 301, the world is a good alternative to certainty. 3011, the world has been allowed to sit and watch from one side of the balance. The world is not supposed to shift the balance, it should just watch. 302, is it completely intentional that the universe has not left roads to the stars? 303, the universe always shows up at the last minute, right before universality gives up. 3031, and always with some kind of new sense. The world is accentuated by the drops as an example. Which ecstasies? The world. I'm interested in the way that your book has a sort of layer that's very much in keeping with the scale of Wittgenstein's project. And it also has a very much smaller layer that uses these specific images throughout, whether silk or shampoo or roses. Could you talk about what's going on in the interrelation between those two things? Well, it is a book that tries to make a path between philosophy and poetry. And therefore, it seemed natural to me to figure out a new language that was mathematical in its its way of dealing with, with, um, with, with the system of, of, of the language and then um, in ca- making some small boxes in which poetry could in, uh, unfold itself um, and I, I, I feel that it is a, 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 a language that is equal to this way I speak now where there the, um, are underst- understatements and primates, prime prime statements, I'm sorry for my English, and these are just made uh, mathematical so that you can look under the sentence and see another one that is, is, has its own essence and is not um, dependent on anything. So I thought that in order to keep the beauty alive, you had to regulate it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, has, it had to be stressed as well. There's a, I, I, to me, the system is stressing, stressful. There's a sort of distress because you, you constantly number the, mm. the images. And I, I think it's very good so that uh, the, the, the images doesn't fall asleep. It, mm-hmm. They are constantly awake. Uh, in right. a sense. Mm. Yes. The other thing that's quite interesting is the way that you, or rather an I in the poem, gradually enters. Mm. And it doesn't take over, but it... I mean, the, the, the line I love is, the world weighs less than my problems. Mm. I'm wondering if that ties in with a an, an reading of Wittgenstein that I find interesting, which is that it has some parallels with psychoanalysis, that there's an extent to which um, it's kind of thinking through things until something rises to the top, and that, that rising to the top is, 
is therapeutic? Um, oh, well, I, I only um, have, a quin have made acquaintance with uh, uh, deep psychology in, in the way of dealing with uh, symbols. Mm. So I, I, I haven't thought about that, but I, well, it's interesting. Um, I, I, I feel that the, 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 the I is there because the world is thought through. It's a thought world. It's not the world. It's just it's it's mm -hmm. an imaginary mm -hmm. world. So therefore, there's an I, and and it has well um, been very loosely uh, co connected with the um, in meditations of Descartes, where he he thinks over over seven or eight steps. Uh, he thinks about um, being and the world. So it's well, it's it's to me, it's important that there's a someone who's involved in this world. Well, to, I think to Wittgenstein, the I the, is, is beyond the world. In a way. So, yeah, he, he does talk about the I, mm. the philosophical I. And one of the things he says is this, that he says, if I wrote a book called The World As I Found It, I would not be in it. <laughs> the I is the limit of the world. So, and he has this, this curiously childlike drawing where he has a little uh, I, and then the thing goes like this, and, and this is the world. Mm. And the... I, to whom it is the world, is not in that world, but rather is, is, a, is a limit of it. And he says, the limits of my language mean the limits of my world. My world. He also says that solipsism, thought through rigorously, coincides with realism. <laughs> it's difficult to know what to make of that. But in any case, he, he didn't think that in pushing forward this view that is clearly a kind of solipsism, he clearly thought that in putting that view forward, he wasn't contradicting realism. Max, where's the I in your work? <laughs> That's interesting. I mean, for me, I mean, the work that I make comes out of my experience of being a human. Uh, being a person is not always that easy, <laughs> as I think everyone knows. Um, so, yeah, the work reflects that. Um, the work reflects you know, the world as I find it. And, you know, again, that is uh, quite troublesome, as we all know. Um, so, yes, I, I guess I'm in there somewhere. Um, or my experience of, of being a person is in there somewhere. And I think, you know, there are meeting points then for listeners, for other people mm -hmm. to kind of participate, mm -hmm. you know. Um, we have common experiences, right? And then that's the sort of that bridge. And that's, I mean, Wittgenstein's project is based upon the idea of if one person reads this and understands it, then my, yeah. my project has been worthwhile. Yeah, but doesn't he also say that you, uh, the ideal sort of reader or the person who, who really gets it is somebody who's had the ideas already? Yes. <laughs> right, so there's a sort of, you know, um, you get it if you get it kind of thing. Well, but that, yeah, I mean, that's, I, I sort of like that about him. I like the profound non-arrogance, the, the not really caring about authorship element, the idea that in many respects he, you sort of feel like Wittgenstein, contrary to almost any other genius in the world, would have been delighted to discover that somebody had already authored his project, yeah. having done so, right. which is a, a kind of degree of both self-confidence and um, humility that is... Uh, Unparalleled, yeah. I think. Well, he's very hard on himself, isn't he, in the tract about the tractatus in various places. Um, and didn't he say that, you know, really, uh, what he what he is is somebody who can't quite do what he wants to do, um, right? 
I think it's a bit later, isn't it? It's in the 30s he says that. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, he seems very, uh, yeah, he's a very harsh critic of the book, even I, in the I, introduction. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the idea of Wittgenstein is humble. Um, <laughs> needs needs <laughs> some qualification. <laughs> okay. um, in his introduction, he says, on the other hand, he's, he's said that, yeah, hasn't achieved very much. He says, on the other hand, the truth of the thoughts that are here communicated seems to me unassailable and definitive. I therefore believe myself to have found on all essential points the final solution of the problems. <laughs> that doesn't sound all that humble. No. Um, I take your point. Uh, and in fact, he thought that he'd solved all the problems of philosophy. And yeah. consistent with that, he gave up philosophy. He'd done it. He'd finished it. Yeah. So, um, I mean, he did think that the Tractatus uh, represented the solution to all the problems of philosophy until Frank Ramsey visited him and demonstrated that, this, that he hadn't. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I wonder if we could just talk a little bit about the more mystical uh, dimensions to the work. Mm. Sina, in your introduction, mm. which I think is extraordinary, you talk about ecstasy mm-hmm. and that being something that Wittgenstein is open to but that doesn't necessarily exist in the Tractatus. Well, Could you talk some more yes. about that? I chose this very dry piece. Uh, no proposition can make a statement about itself yeah. because... It cannot be contained in itself, but I could also have chosen another piece that is equivalent, and which where he states that the feeling of the world as a limited whole is the mystical. Mm. So the the feeling of the existence of the limit is that which well he makes a loop in my opinion. He he does he does stand at the imminence of the world, right. and then he doesn't even point to the trans, to the transcendent, but he just knows that having highlighted the world. Mm. Everything else is in question, and everything else is. He doesn't. He doesn't. He doesn't go there, but he knows that that embodying uh, the the being, he 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 he. he everything mystical is is at hand, um, and and I, I I chose a more traditional way of mysticism, that is um, try to evoke, try to walk into it. Um, but I have been inspired by his way of dealing with limits very much, and and actually one of the one of the um, phrases of Wittgenstein that I have been most inspired by is not from the Tractatus, but it's from his notebooks, where he says that when I have done with the world, 
Um, well, I, I don't remember it in English really, but I, I can say, say that he says, when I have done with the world, um, he has created an, an amorphous mass, and the whole world lies, uh, lies there as an interesting box room. Um, so I, I think this is connected with the containment, this box room, mm -hmm. that there's, mystic, there's a mysticism in the containment mm -hmm. itself. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, I, I don't know much about it, but I'm very interested in hearing about it, but I know that it is connected with the, with the paradox of Russell, um, that you can't, you can't have a set, well, you have a set of sets, of all sets, that are not members of themselves, and doesn't contain themselves. Mm -hmm. So this paradox, of stating that you have a you have a you have a universe mm. that that uh, that is not that is a there's a, a set in a way I, I think that his he, set theory is quite imminent in the book and and this way of putting the, the boundaries of everything is a way of of, of making the mystical um, stand out um, and I've just chosen to walk into it. Mm. I think that's that's really interesting, um, specifically in terms of music, I think, mm. because I think that the mystical is often where helpful conversations about music go to die. Yeah. <laughs> it can often be a kind of, you know, music somehow offers, maybe because of a, a loss of musicological kind of grounding in yes. everyday conversation, but obviously it is something that music has available to it, mm. but it's also really important that we don't, think it's only what music has available to it because at that point then it just becomes a kind of you know transcendental sludge how <laughs> how do you deploy the mystical <laughs> in your work it's it's very hard to talk about music in a useful way it really is mm. yeah i mean academic music you know writing through the centuries has has tried to find different ways to address it, you know, you, you sort of go back to sort of Tovey, and it's it's sort of very novelistic, mm. and then you get, um, you know, Schenker, say, who who deals with it almost from a geometric standpoint, mm. and then all kinds of other ways of of uh, analysing the work. But you know, ultimately, it's it's a completely subjective situation, and the kinds of decisions that people make to describe a piece of music are they're instinctive, right? Something will, an event will happen which appears to be meaningful in some way in a piece of music, and how does that happen? Mm. Can I ask something? What, what do you think of Schopenhauer's work on music? Because we know that Wittgenstein is very influenced by Schopenhauer. Yeah. Schopenhauer was the first philosopher he read, and you can see that influence. Mm. You can see the influence of the world as will and representation in the tractate. Uh, and Schopenhauer has a great deal to say about music in that, in that book. Well, what do you think? Have you read it? I haven't read it for about 38 years, <laughs> <Yeah>. so um, <laughs> you'll have to update well, shall, me. Shall I, shall I yeah, go? go. Mm. <laughs> Very quickly, um, Kant had analysed the world in terms of noumena and phenomena. The noumena are the things in themselves, the phenomena are the things as they appear to us. Mm. We can only know things about the world as phenomena. We can't know the noumena, according to Kant. Schopenhauer had his version of that, which is the world as will and representation. Ordinarily, we can only know the world as we represent it. But music mm. gives us access to his version of the thing in itself, which is the will. Right. 
And it's precisely because it gives us direct access to that, unmediated by any form of representation, that it is, that it is so powerful, according to Schopenhauer. Right. Yeah. Um, Sounds a bit grand to me. Yes. Well, I, <laughs> that, I think that does make sense, but I, the opposite also makes sense. Um, <laughs> I think, uh, you know, unmediated by representation, yes. That's one view of music. On the yeah. other hand, music is representative in many in many respects and in many circumstances. So it makes sense, but is it true? You're right, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm I'm interested in Cena's idea of the it, sort of the the transcendental being there and choosing to step into it or not. Mm. Do you feel moments when you do and moments when you don't? In terms of you know, perhaps you work up to a point where you you sort of give yourself up unto it. Eventually, yes. Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, I think probably everyone who does creative work has that experience. You know, you, you, you try to do things, you try to make things, and if you're lucky, at a certain point, something happens, so that the things you're making start to take on properties mm. of their own, um, and that, I think, is something really mm. special. Mm. Um, yeah, that's something really special. I wonder if that applies to biography here, because. Presumably, you're interested in both Wittgenstein's work and also Wittgenstein's extraordinary life. Yeah. It seems to me that there's a very interesting crossover point where something becomes almost fiction-null-seeming about Wittgenstein's life, perhaps because it almost has this kind of Old and New Testament quality to it. You have the kind of two works, the people who still believe in the first part, the people who believe in the second part, mm -hmm. the idea of this kind of almost holy fool at the center of it. Did you feel when you were writing about him that occasionally it almost did take off in that way? Well, what I felt was there's a strong connection between Wittgenstein, the person, and his philosophy. And it became my aim yeah. in the book to show that connection. Mm. And also to show that if you misunderstand him, you will misunderstand the spirit in which he wrote his, his, right. his work. Yeah. And it seems to me the spirit in which he wrote his work is the key thing to understanding it. Mm. And, and it really helps, I think, to know what kind of person he was. Yeah. So, and, I, and, and I think he was an extraordinary person. I'm not sure I'd use the phrase holy fool. But he, he was... Um, he lived an extraordinarily pared-down life. Mm. You know, quite deliberately pared-down. He never owned a house. He never married. He had as few possessions as possible. He inherited vast wealth, but he gave it all away. Um, he gave it to his sisters, who he said were already so rich it wouldn't damage them. Uh, um, and he always lived in very simple surroundings. And he concentrated on just two things. The first was to think clearly. And the second was to be a decent human being. And those two things were two sides of the same coin, what I call in the book the duty of genius, that what prevents us thinking clearly, according to Wittgenstein, is often not a lack of intelligence, but vanity, a lack of will. We tell ourselves we understand something when we don't, or we try to make ourselves appear clever and make that the object of, of, of what we say, rather than just trying to understand it. So the two things go hand in hand. He himself made strenuous efforts to rid himself of vanity 
partly for its own sake and partly because he thought that would clear the barriers to thinking clearly. So they were, they were intimately bound together. Yeah. That leads us brilliantly into... Oh, sorry, do you want to just say something first? No, I, it's interesting. Uh, I mean, it, when I read the Tractatus, it, it strikes me as, as very biographical. You get such a strong sense of the person. Yeah. And, and more than that, you get, I think, a sense of somebody who's really struggling with something. Oh, and that's interesting. It made me think about, you know, his, his line about finding um, the redeeming word, das Erlösende yeah, Wort. Yeah, yeah. And um, I wondered, actually, whether your poem actually sort of is a collection of redeeming words for the Tractatus itself. So it's almost like a kind of antimatter version, as you say, coming from ecstasy rather than limits. Can I just say something about that? <laughs> Do. About, as it were, the expressive quality of the tractate. Yeah. One thing that drives philosophers nuts about it is that it contains so few arguments. Right. Mm. Bertrand Russell tells his story of, of um, upbraiding Wittgenstein about this and saying, look, why you've got all these conclusions. Why don't you give us the arguments for them? Show your workings. Show your workings. <laughs> and Wittgenstein said this. He said, well, look, I regard my propositions as like beautiful flowers. Yeah, and he said... And if I were to provide an argument for them, it would be like surrounding the flower with barbed wire. Right. <laughs> mm. Rather beautiful image, I mm. think. Um, and it reminded me of, of um, one of your uh, uh, propositions. The roses, are, the roses were just about to pack up and leave everything when the universe fell in love with the law of causation. And we go back to the roses. The world leaves everything to the roses, which leave everything to chance. It seems to me that that, that that image of the rose is redolent, very redolent, of, of, of Wittgenstein's image of his own propositions as, as beautiful, delicate things that could only be destroyed by argument. Oh, yes. Right. Mm. That's, but that makes him, of course, a poet. I, I, I just had an experience for some days ago where we were talking about this book, and I afterwards passed by some flowers and I, yeah, I yeah. just knew that they are poetry. It's, it's beautiful, yeah. yeah. I, and I, I think that's what he meant in mm -hmm. the remark that you mentioned earlier. That yeah. He said, I think I summed up my attitude to philosophy when I said philosophy ought to be written as uh, if it were poetry. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so do you want to just briefly address Max's question about the kind of idea of it being an antimatter Because oh. <laughs> yes. I, I, The reason I ask is because I think that the ending of of your poem is very extraordinary, but in a in a way that is almost exactly the opposite of how the Tractatus ends. Yes. Well. Do you want to just um, I briefly can read, it aloud. read the last yes. proposition? It's proposition seven eight. The everything is one of the few bright spots in my life. Um, I, I, of course, of course, you want to to infuse the Tractatus with this feeling or this 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 being and yeah. um, you want it to to be you want it to to be alive with being and 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 being is well you talk, you talked about these the quality of the sentences that are uh, resting in themselves that, that have to, they have themselves as ground mm. and that is a, a being of poetry and you, you can never explain it and, and I, perhaps when reading such agon, ag agonizing uh, 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 literature as the Wittgenstein's Tractatus, you, you, you want to, 
um, to, 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 to infuse it in a way so that it, not that it stands still, but so that it, it lightens up in a way mm -hmm. and, and, and so that it becomes flower-like as it is, but, but just without searching. That, that in my opinion, there's not much search in, in, in these, these lines uh, that I wrote. Mm. I, I, mm. I, I think they are, they, I, I wanted to make them as, as destinies, mm. yeah. uh, destinations, sorry. Yeah. 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 But, 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 but on the semantic level, the world is walking constantly, uh, but, but the poetry is resting. I think we need to come to questions, otherwise we'll run out of time. Um, I wanted to follow what Ray said with what Wittgenstein famously told his students when he was a teacher, which was, don't try to be clever. <laughs> so that applies to the Q&A. The other thing to say about it is that this is the only mic we have, so um, I'm going to have to pass the mic out. Uh, David will deliver it to questioners, and then the mic will be passed back to me, and I will... Oh, or indeed, uh, maybe it doesn't need to be if people address their questions directly to, <laughs> to the panellists who are much more interesting. So please raise your hand if you'd like to ask a question. Thank you. This is a fascinating discussion. And the Tractators is a very important book to me, partly because it seems to me to have a political significance. And I wanted to ask the panel if they saw a political significance in the Tractators, namely that it rejects logic um, as a way of organizing life, it rejects uh, materialism, it rejects scientism, and says that other things are most important in life, these ineffable, um, indescribable, unstatable things. Um, and that seems to me to be a real rejection of neoclassical economics and indeed capitalism. And is that a fair reading of, um, of the Tractatus? Uh, sure, yeah. I mean, I, I think I agree with everything you've just said. I, um, I certainly read the book as anti-scientistic. Now, neoclassical economics, I'm not sure Wittgenstein knew a whole load about that. He did reject capitalism, that's for sure. And if you asked him to describe his perfect world, it certainly wouldn't be a capitalist world. So I mentioned earlier his, his, his view, which coincides with Spengler's, that our world, the world of, of, of Western Europe and Western civilization, has been in decline since the days of the great composers. Uh, Beethoven and Mozart and, and, and so on, so that now the leading figures are the engineers and, and the mathematicians. And I think part of that drive is indeed capitalism. And I don't think Wittgenstein would have disagreed with that. After all, in the 30s, he made steps to, um, to live and work in the Soviet Union because he thought something new was happening there. He thought our culture was dead and that there were two options. One was the Soviet Union. The other was America, which he understood before he actually went there, <laughs> he, uh, he understood as, as offering something new. Um, he loved American movies. Gilbert Ryle, the British philosopher, tells a story of meeting Wittgenstein and then getting, very, getting on very well talking about movies. He said until Ryle started talking about British movies. And he said well, he and Wittgenstein agreed that there hadn't, in fact, ever been a good British movie. But he said where he departed from Wittgenstein is he didn't agree that there could not possibly be a good British movie. <laughs> um, and for Wittgenstein, mm. the point there was that movies were part of this new culture that America had to, had to offer, and that if the British tried to make a movie, or you know, the British did try making movies, they would have, as he often put it, the barnacles sticking to them. You know, the barnacles of the old culture would still be there, ru ruining it all. So, yes, 
Now, I think it would be a very astute person who read the Tractatus and saw that political significance, because um, it certainly doesn't, it's certainly not there on the page. But I think when one knows a bit about Wittgenstein and his attitudes, then one can certainly read the book in, in, in that light. Would either of you like to speak to the political component, or should we move on to the next question? Um, Okay, let's start here as you're there. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so thank you very much. Indeed, I, I got, got very into Wittgenstein about 10 years ago, thinking through, through it in terms of representation and how that plays into modelling as an important subject. But, but, but by chance, I've been, my, my sort of summer project this year is working through sort of Ian McGilchrist's mind, Minds of Left Brain, Right Brain, sort of books, and he's come up with a sort of two-volume, effectively something like expansion of it as master in the emissary work of 10 years ago. It does strike me, listening to all this and being reminded of all the work I was doing 10 years ago, that it doesn't, Wittgenstein is very much a right brain antidote to various sort of left brains sort of analytical, you know, you can only know what you can prove in a sort of quasi-scientific way, left brain way of philosophy. Um, so that's obviously rather sort of trivialising the, the left brain, right brain argument and also trivialising Wittgenstein's thoughts. But I wonder if, if that sort of prompts you to sort of any sort of interesting thoughts relating to that and, and that whole sort of left brain, right brain, you know, quantitative versus qualitative dynamic in, in the world and how that plays into, into wider spheres. Sh shall I go? Yeah, you start. Um, so I don't know anywhere where, where Wittgenstein uses that particular terminology of left brain and, and, and right brain. But there's a rather similar distinction made by William James, who was a writer that Wittgenstein did read quite um, intensely. William James is the most quoted um, writer in Wittgenstein's Philosophical Investigations. Mm. Not a lot of people know that. Um, <laughs> and William James made a slightly similar distinction between verbalizers and visualizers. And Wittgenstein does allude to that several times, describing himself as a visualizer. And you can see that in the tractatus quite yeah. clearly. Mm. The idea of pictures, mm -hmm. yeah. the idea that we understand pictorially. Mm. Uh, Russell, by the way, was an extreme verbalizer. Um, his friend Crawshay Williams describes them discussing geometrical figures and it was very clear that um, Russell's uh, the, the, he, he was doing a sort of IQ test and he did exceptionally well up to a point and then he did exceptionally badly and the point was where he ran out of words for the geometrical shapes he was fine so long as he had a word for it um, Whereas you can see many times in Wittgenstein's writing and in his notebooks and in his conversations that he had to have a picture for it. Mm. He mentions this in, in some remarks that have been published in Culture and Value and he describes it, perhaps not very happily, as a feminine way of... He, 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 he thinks of himself as having a feminine kind of uh, understanding. But in any case, it, he, he thought of himself quite consciously as having the kind of understanding that had to picture things to himself. That was actually a question I wanted to ask you. No, it's fine. It's very quick. Do you see your work as pictorial in character? Do you do you do you think that you have that same instinct towards um, that being what language does? Yes, indeed, <laughs> very much. I, I I have always been visionary poetry and, and, and I thought about what is vision, what is visionary poetry and I, I, I have thought, thought that visionary poetry is that sort of poetry that um, creates where, that, where, where, then, where nothing is, that, that it, what you need you get 
if you need something, you can just you can just make it. Mm. That's to me visionary poetry, and I see it or always. It's it's very very visionary in, in pictures. The images that rise out of your book. Did you see those when you read the tractatus? Oh no. You didn't. I mean, in terms of silk and <laughs> and. <laughs> no, they are completely uh, some, something new, infusing. Right. Yes. Uh, that um, came out of the practice as opposed but, to the reading. But the silk also has a, a, a quality of, of being connected with the process of the silk warm yeah. becoming a, sure. a butterfly. And that is also a, an image of transcendence. So, mm. so, but I, I, know, I, would, I would never go farther than that. It should not be an image upon anything else. But I, I agree, I, 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 I allow the image to have some sense of, some sort of, of meaning, but but only, only a meaning that tells something about itself, mm -hmm. because the transcendence only tells something about what the picture is doing in the poem. Mm. It, it doesn't tell anything mm. else about the world or us. Max, uh, the composer Nico Muley wrote a, a diary in the LRB about his compositional practice, and it was clear from that that he very much does see music as a picture. He talked right. about the idea that he, he starts with an image and then he breaks the image apart and then yeah. he sees the broken apart image inside a building and then the, you know, yeah. and that's essentially it's an architectural kind of blueprint um is that is there a visual element to yes. how you conceive of projects particularly big projects yes um i mean i think with a piece of music you're you're making something that doesn't yet exist exist so you mm -hmm. start with a, a silent sort of blackness and you put musical objects into it. So it feels like you're making a place. You're making something which has, which has properties, which has things in it, things that relate to one another in particular ways. And as you start to make that place, it changes the sorts of actions that are possible within it and the kinds of things that can happen within it. So it starts to take on a kind of a property. Yeah, I think that's a, to me, that's a very natural way to, to kind of go from nothing to something. Hi, thanks very much for a great discussion and uh, extra thanks to Ray for teaching me Wittgenstein 25 years ago. It's really made an impact. Um, I'm teaching it now myself. Um, I've just got a question about the kind of ethics and um, mystical stuff, which he's setting aside from the things we can say clearly. Uh, noticing the women are up to something, Benjamin Lipstadt's wonderful book about Iris Murdoch and um, everyone there. Um, and they were reacting to a kind of ethical relativism um, I was wondering if you could maybe comment on whether you think that Wittgenstein opened the door to that kind of ethical relativism by placing it outside of what we could say. Yeah, okay. <laughs> no, no I'm, I'm happy feeling that. Um, I think the answer is no. I don't think Wittgenstein ever had any truck with ethical relativism. Now, should he have, having placed ethics outside the realm about which we can say things that are objectively true and false... Shouldn't he have, he have... This was behind your question, right? I mean, because when you list all the propositions that are true, to each one of those corresponds a fact, and those facts collectively make up the world. And none of them will be about ethics. There are no ethical facts. Does ethical relativism follow from that? I don't think it does, funnily enough. What does follow is that there can be no such thing as 
as it were, a science of ethics that tells you, that instructs you in what you should or shouldn't do. But I think the idea that we see things which we then can't say, I don't think there's anything necessarily relativistic about that. In fact, I think maybe, if anything, the opposite, because you can only be shown something and you can only show something to other people that is actually there. So I think actually it's, it, the tendency is anti-relativistic. And certainly that was his tendency. He, he, um, he had, as you know, very strong ethical opinions. He didn't think, you know, that they were, that he was, uh, that they were relative to his culture or, or to anything else. He refused to theorize or even discuss ethics as a branch of philosophy. He never did that. He, he, he delivered that lecture on ethics um, in Cambridge in 1929. But it's not really about ethics. It's not really about what philosophers call ethics. He's not taking a view on the logical status of moral propositions. Neither is he, in a first-order kind of way, saying, you know, whether certain things are good or bad or allowed or not allowed. The entire lecture is actually about running up against the limits of language. So... Having run up against the limits of language, ethics lies beyond those limits and is something, it belongs to the mystical. And I think rather than it following that relativism is true, I think it would follow that relativism isn't true. The phrase that's suggested by this, particularly through a lens of the example of Bertrand Russell, who obviously became a public figure in a certain kind yeah, of way, yeah. sort of at the point that his brain broke. <laughs> uh, he was no longer able to live in an abstract way. And it's the Chomsky phrase, the responsibility of in intellectuals. I wonder if uh, Max, as a, a high-profile artistic figure, you feel a certain ethical responsibility. Um, I, I do, actually. I mean, it seems to me that if you're choosing to make objects and put them into the world, then you have a responsibility for what those objects are and their properties and what effects they have to some extent. And I think you know, music is a way to talk about the world as we live it in it. There's, Nina, you know, there's that Nina Simone quote, isn't there, where she says, you can't help but talk about the stuff that's going on. You know, it's, just, it's just automatic, basically, mm. um, in a way that Everybody else does, you know, everyone else, just non-artists, if you like, also talk about what's going on in the world. And as an artist, I think it's quite natural that we should do that. So for me, you know, the thing that lights the fuse very often is some kind of a question about what's going on. Um, and those are the things that sort of make me want to start a project. Mm. I think we might finish there unless anyone has a, a bursting question. Is your question bursting? <laughs> in that case, we'll finish there. Uh, thank you so much, Ray, Max, Sina. I really think that was such an interesting conversation. And I'm sure you'll now all be determined to buy a copy of the Tractatus if you don't already have one, a copy of Sina's books, and to seek out Max's music. So um, thank you. Thank you for coming. My biography. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you. Ray's biography. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.